Hi, I'm Dr. Kerry Mackerith from the University of Cambridge. Dr. Eleanor Drage and I are the hosts of the Good Robot podcast. Join us as we ask the experts, what is good technology? Is it even possible? And how can feminism help us work towards it? If you want to learn more about today's topic, head over to our website, www.thegoodrobot.co.uk, where we've got a full transcript of the episode and a specially curated reading list by every guest. We love hearing from listeners, so feel free to tweet or email us, and we'd also so appreciate it if you left us a review on the podcast app. But until then, sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. In this episode, we chat to Laura Filano, Associate Professor of Design at the Institute of Design at Illinois Institute of Technology. This is a special episode because Laura reads us some of her work on life as a type 1 diabetic or in her words, a disabled cyborg calibrated to an insulin pump. Laura's writing gives us a different kind of insight into good technology, tech that in her case literally keeps her alive, but can also let her down in alarming ways. I hope you enjoy the show. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us here today. It's wonderful to get to chat. So just to kick us off, could you tell us a bit about who you are, what you do, and what brings you to thinking about feminism, disability, and technology? Hi, I'm Laura Forlano. I'm an associate professor of design at the Institute of Design at Illinois Institute of Technology. And I'm a social scientist and design researcher. And I am brought to feminism and technology specifically because I've found that uh, in talking about my own uh, disability, I'm a type 1 diabetic. And uh, feminism and disability studies offer me ways of writing about my own experience using autoethnographic field notes to think about the politics of technology. Wonderful. Well, today we have a special treat for listeners before we ask our big robot questions. Laura, you're going to read a vignette from one of your works that you've written based on your personal experience of living this extraordinarily intimate life with a very particular set of technologies. Great. Yes. So I'm going to read a uh, reflection. I'm thinking about this as creative nonfiction writing. It's part of autoethnographic field notes on my own experience with disability as a type 1 diabetic. And I'm going to read to you a vignette, um, which I call um, Plans and Situated Algorithmic Actions. And this is part one from 2018. So In 2013, before I adopted an insulin pump and sensor system, I often woke in the night, drenched in sweat, and nearly too weak to get out of bed to get a 15-ounce glass of orange juice from the refrigerator in the kitchen a few steps away, or even to reach for chalky glucose tablets sitting on the nightstand. I often went to sleep hoping I'd wake up in the morning and not fall into a diabetic coma. While teaching my classes, my face would go numb. While walking down the street, I would suddenly not be able to feel my legs. While that fear of frequent, severe lows is a thing of the past in my case, from 2018 to 2022, due to the need to calibrate the sensor system in order to ensure the continued operation and accuracy of the insulin pump, I was not able to sleep through the night more than a few times a week. It's almost ironic that the system that has nearly eliminated the frequent episodes of extreme low blood sugar that woke me in the middle of the night almost a decade ago has enforced another form of sleep interruption and deprivation. But this one feeds data to the algorithm rather than sugar to the body. With 
This smart system frequent sleep interruption was such a common occurrence that I was convinced that I was sleeping like a sensor in shorter patterns that mimic the system. And in short, if you cannot sleep, you cannot dream. With long-term sleep deprivation leading to anxiety, irritability, and depression, I believe that the AI system that's keeping me alive is also ruining my life. Thank you. That was wonderful. In light of that reading, I'm going to ask you our big robot question slightly differently. So we usually say, you know, what is good technology? Is even possible? And how can a feminism help us get there? And those questions often lead us or our guests to think very abstractly. But the experience that you've read to us is extremely concrete, and it's based on a particular kind of technology. So what for you is good everyday technology? How does it feel when it works well? And how can thinking about technology through disability help us shed new light on what good technology actually might be? That's such a great question. I mean, for me, good technology is really generous and compatible with human life. It's an interaction that is kind. And I often talk about this notion of intimate infrastructure. So this intimate relation you have when living with technology, uh, especially an existential technology that is keeping you alive. Um, So I really think of it in those terms. And so many of our interactions with technology are quite the opposite. They're dehumanizing, they're abusive, they're um, persuasive in, in the fact that they're nudging you constantly to, to make certain, certain decisions or do t- certain things. And so for me, I, I really think about what would the relationship look like with technology if it was a healthy relationship um, in the same way that we might think about relationships with friends or family. What feels like a healthy relationship and what feels unhealthy or um, incompatible with, with, you know, your values and your ethics and, and your politics, for example. And so the second part of the question, I think, is about how thinking about technology through a disability lens might uh, allow us for imagining alternatives. And so for me, I ask this question, can AI, artificial intelligence, be disabled? And using that language of disability for me invites a number of different readings or meanings. So in the disability community or writing as a disabled person, um, we often use the term CRIP to refer to disability. And this is a positive association with our identity. It is not a lack of something, but it's an expansion of what it means to be human. And so thinking about AI from a CRIP or disability perspective might suggest that we think about the failure and the ways in which technologies may not work in the ways that are often promised, but that this, you know, this failure or this malfunction might be seen as a positive or a generative moment. And in fact, in recent months, I'm noticing more and more uh, research on computational technologies and algorithmic systems engaging in a generative way with failure, um, again, not as a lack, but as an actually a point of uh, invite inventing new methodologies for engaging with computational systems. So those are some of the things that I think 
can be done um, by using this lens of disability to think about computation technology. That's really fantastic. Thank you so much. And it actually reminds me of something that Eleanor works on, as well as a number of other feminist theorists and sort of queer theorists trying to think about what possibilities are opened up by by failure, because so much of the use of these contemporary computational systems is about foreclosure. It's about closing down particular futures and closing down particular avenues for things to unfold. And I think that's what so much of the kind of work we do is about. It's about pushing back against that. I was wondering if you wouldn't mind reading us another vignette and if we could use that vignette and also the first one you shared to think about how we being compelled to calibrate ourselves to the technologies that we supposedly use. Sure. Um, well, definitely with the calibration of sensor systems, as I mentioned, I had you know frequent sleep interruption due to the need to calibrate the system. And then even on the nights that I wasn't woken up in the middle of the night on multiple occasions to calibrate, I actually still had very um, disrupted sleep patterns. And so that was, you know, in a way, so much of we learned from studying technology is the ways that we are formatting humans to fit computational systems. And I think we could look at a wide range of technologies and, and try to understand, for example, the ways that we change our voice patterns when we try to talk to Siri or Alexa it might be an example of the ways in which we are formatting and, and sort of calibrating our own human systems um, to fit better with, with computational technology. So the second vignette I want to read is called um, Part 2, 2021. A disabled cyborg is nothing without the right parts. One morning in early December, on the final day of the semester, I got a low battery alert. It was 11.45 a.m., and I needed to eat lunch before heading to campus to teach that afternoon at 2 p.m. I unscrewed the battery cap with a coin, a quarter to be exact. I popped the new battery in and screwed the battery cap back on. But the pump did not recognize the battery, and the screen did not illuminate. I glanced at the small table in the corner of the room where I had placed the pump and saw a small copper-colored piece of metal, the shape of a plus sign with little grooves and bumps. The piece had fallen off the cap. My heart was pounding. I was very stressed and afraid in an existential way. I called the company's tech support, but the soonest they could deliver a new battery cap was the following day. I considered possible fixes for the broken cap. I went to buy some superglue at the nearest CVS pharmacy located within a Target store. I sat on a bench in the pharmacy, carefully dropping a dab of glue onto the battery cap and trying to affix the metal piece. Once it dried, I screwed it back in. Still, this made no difference. My phone rang. It was the local diabetes educator. He'd remembered my name from the original training three years before. He had a few extra battery caps and could drop one off that afternoon. At 2.45 p.m., he met me at the pharmacy. I bought a package of new batteries and inserted them into the pump along with the new battery cap. Ta-da! The screen illuminated... I re reconnected my pump to my body. In seven years, this was the longest that I had been disconnected from my pump. My heart started beating more slowly. I zipped up my coat and headed over to a restaurant for lunch. As I was walking westward away from the pharmacy, I felt a familiar buzzing under my coat. Bzz, 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 bzz. The sensation that had been such a nuisance for so many years reminded me that once again, I was still alive. Bzz, bzz. 
I was reunited with my disabled cyborg identity. I unzipped my coat from the bottom and took out my pump. Calibrate now, the alert said. Calibrate now. So wonderful. I love that you have managed to make this incredibly truthful, but also this idea of calibration to technology is something that a lot of people can resound with, right? It kind of happens without us knowing it. We reorient ourselves and kind of rejig ourselves so that we uh, better align with the stuff that, that we use. And in your case, keeps you alive. And this is an extraordinary piece of writing, but you also work with artists and design initiatives to make visible certain aspects of the subjective experience of living with technology. So how do you do that to find new ways of connecting with audiences? Absolutely. I think one of the first pieces that I worked on uh, specific to this topic and this project was actually a bathing suit um, designed with sky Cub a cub of rebirth garments, a queer crypt fashion designer. And I was prompted to reach out to Sky uh, specifically because I w- had a lot of anxiety about what it meant to be seen, um, for example, on the beach in the summer with this piece of technology attached to my body. Um, and so the bathing suit has some special cus- custom pouches that um, attach to the bathing suit and um, accommodate the insulin pump. And so primarily it was a, a prototype for thinking about uh, the visibility of the technology on the body and the invisibility of the condition of diabetes itself. And so one of the interesting things I think about diabetes is that it it's invisible. Um, most of the time I, so to speak, pass for someone without a disability. Um, but over the last, especially over the last seven years, I've really come to realize that, you know, as a disability, it is a really um, unique experience of the world. And again, like taking a crip perspective, it's really an expansion of what it means to be human. And so I try to share that through the creative nonfiction writing. But then the art and design prototypes offer ways of thinking about, you know, what this, you know, the meanings uh, and sort of how these things are socialized and offers a kind of research creation or practice-based design way of engaging with the topic as well. So that often um, can open up new questions about um, the research topic, but also engaging with materials and, and, you know, colors and patterns and aesthetics and feelings and emotions, right? So it really allows you to externalize some of that um, off of the page, but into a physical object that also audiences could come and, and see as well. That's really wonderful. And I really love your work for so many different reasons. It's also really special to hear you read your vignettes because I've read them on paper before, but to kind of hear you sort of say them, you know, it gives them a different kind of resonance as well. And so, yeah, thank you so much for being willing to share these stories on the podcast. I think it's also particularly important because something that you've flagged quite a lot is how uncomfortable a lot of people still are about talking about disability in public. And that's something I think we see a lot in higher education. Eleanor and I are both based at the University of Cambridge. Um, and you're also I know, an academic and scholar as well as an artist and amazing practitioner. And these spaces, I think, are places where often a lot of disabilities, both visible and in- invisible, are still really difficult to talk about. And so I was wondering if we could hear your third vignette and also maybe have a bit more of a conversation about how art might be able to combat or engage productively with the kinds of discomfort people feel about talking about disability. 
Sure, I'd love that. Uh, so part three, 2022, the machine that brought me to my knees. It was 3.30 a.m. on a Saturday morning in late August after a long and intense week of travel. I was in the bathroom grasping the porcelain of the toilet bowl, hanging on as if my life depended on it. And in fact, it did. I had awoken with dangerously high blood sugar. I thought it was strange. I hadn't eaten much the day before because I was worried that I'd run out of insulin before getting back home to New York. About 30 minutes before I got home on a delayed A train, my pump started its characteristic buzzing and beeping, its only means of communication with me, its human being. As soon as I arrived, sweaty and tired, I changed the cartridge of insulin in the, in the pump and tubing that was attached to my stomach. Facing a refrigerator that was nearly empty after four weeks of travel, I went straight to bed without dinner, too tired to make any additional effort. At 4 a.m., I drank some water, ate some crackers, and went back to bed, administering insulin with the pump every 30 minutes and monitoring its effect on my BG, blood sugar. I felt nauseous again and ran to the bathroom. At 5 a.m., I hypothesized that I wasn't getting any insulin at all, and so I changed the tubing. At 7.30 a.m., there was still no change, and my husband went for a haircut. At 8.15 a.m., I texted him that the numbers were finally coming down. I fell asleep at 9 a.m. Later that day, I removed the original site. Sure enough, the small tube that delivers the insulin had bent and slid right under the adhesive tape and never entered my skin. The humidity in the apartment had prevented the adhesive from sticking properly. I'd been without insulin for nearly 12 hours for the first time in 10 years. It took me nearly a week to recover. I think one of the reasons I like both the creative nonfiction style of writing as well as the autoethnographic field notes is that it actually has allowed me to transform my myself and my academic work. My way of presenting can become much more performative and almost theatrical as compared to maybe, you know, another project that I might do on a topic that's more distant from my own experience. And so that um, aspect has been really enjoyable. And then I think to, to try to tie in perhaps, you know, how do these vignettes introduce disability and hopefully make it less of a stigmatized um, topic within academic circles. Um, of course, there are, you know, critical disability studies and, and other communities where disability is the topic, but I still find that in many academic, um, professional settings, and even personal conversations that, you know, generally, we don't really want to hear too much about each other's, you know, problems or, um, you know, uh, diseases, conditions, disabilities. These are, these have kind of been set off to the side. Um, and I do think that one of the things that feminism does is to, you know, make it part of the conversation about the politics of technology, because if we aren't willing to look carefully at our own experiences with technology, then, you know, and all the, the diversity of our identities, whether that be race, gender, sexuality, disability, that, you know, we really are dealing with a very impoverished understanding of the world. And so I think one of the things that we can do by sharing these kinds of narratives and doing it from a research perspective. Um, so like I make very clear in this work that these are not, you know, meant to be confessional 
And they're not even necessarily meant to be personal, but they're meant to be research about the relationship of humans living with technological systems. And so from that perspective, I, I really hope to give, you know, other researchers also perhaps examples that um, can take to really allow us to develop a fuller understanding of what it means to be human in the expanded experience uh, that we have with technology. Absolutely. And I think it's been such a privilege to be able to chat with you about this today. And we were actually just chatting this morning with an incredible artist whose episode will be coming out on the Good Robot podcast. So for our listeners, get excited for that as well. And she was talking about her embodied art practice and why that was so important to how she thought about and engaged with technology. And so it's really special as well, I think, to get to talk to you and hear about how both your personal experiences, but also the way that you narrativize and think about those experiences is providing us, again, not with a full closure, but with an opening to thinking about what our relationships with technology have been like. So thank you so much for taking the time to share your work and your stories with us on the Good Robot podcast. We are so appreciative of it. Thank you both. Thanks, Eleanor, and thanks, Carrie. This episode was made possible thanks to our generous funder, Christina Gould. It was written and produced by Dr. Eleanor Drage and Dr. Kerry Makarath and edited by Laura Zamulio-Nithan. <laughs>